good morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians and chapter 3. It is a rich passage that I know many of you love. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to make it profitable in our lives today. If you are using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, then you can find that on page 980, uh, excuse me, 984, 984. If you have found your place, if you're able to do so, I'd like to ask you to stand as we read God's word together, please. These are the words of God written by the Apostle Paul. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you that you might make our hearts receptive to your word this morning. We stand in great need of what you have to tell us. We need your instruction. And we need the hope and strength that comes from setting our eyes on Christ. So by the power of your Spirit, Lord, would you come and fill us today and remind us 
of the greatness of your son and his work and his exalted status at your right hand. Cause us to reflect on what we've just sung sung about, the glorious day when every tribe and tongue and nation join in that song of praise to you for redeeming us and making us yours. Fill our minds and hearts with these things, we pray, for our own benefit, but ultimately for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Colossians 3 is a really good example of something we talk about a lot here at Redeemer. And that is how the commands of the New Testament are always rooted in the truth of the gospel. And this is something that is absolutely essential for understanding the Christian life. We cannot separate how we are supposed to live from the message which gives us life. And the Apostle Paul perfectly integrates these two ideas here in this passage. Now the language that he uses at the very beginning of this chapter immediately points us back to the contents of the first two chapters. And so I think that's really where we need to begin with some uh, kind of overview and quick run through those, the first half of the, of the book. Chapter 1 starts with Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for these Colossian Christians as he remembers God's work of grace among them, how they had received the gospel and had been delivered from the domain of darkness in which they had formerly been held in captivity. Now they've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, God's Son. And he moves into this magnificent description of who this Jesus is who has rescued them. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn or the rightful heir of all creation. He is the one by whom and for whom all things were made. And it is particularly in his resurrection from the dead that God shows Christ's preeminence over all things. And those who continue in faith in him receive all the benefits of his exaltation and his supremacy because they have been reconciled to God in the body of Christ's flesh by his death. And all that we need is found in him. And that is especially Paul's focus as he moves into chapter 2 where he warns these believers not to let anyone or anything draw them away from the knowledge of their sufficiency in the all-sufficient Christ. Don't let anyone trick you into thinking that you need something other than Christ. The whole fullness of of deity, he says, dwells in him. He is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in him. You do not need to rely on Old Testament regulations like circumcision because in Christ you have received the true circumcision. You mustn't put yourself under the authority of Old Testament dietary or calendar laws because those were just shadows pointing forward to the work of Christ. And you certainly don't need to follow man-made rules and requirements that claim to give you an extra boost in your battle against the flesh. Paul says at the end of chapter 2, those things are of no value. Now why would he say that? Why, Paul, why can't you be 
a little more open to the possibility of receiving help from these various sources. And the reason he gives is that those things belong to an old life from which you have been removed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to verse 12 and verse 20, you died and you were buried and you've been raised again with Christ. So looking to something outside of Christ to help you in your walk with Christ is kind of like practicing how to roll your wheelchair when you've been been given a strong new set of legs. So here's what Paul wants us to remember as we move into chapter 3. In fact, he's very specific and very purposeful about reminding us of what he's been teaching so far. When you became a Christian, when you bowed before the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, and you embraced the authority of this one by whom and for whom all things were made, and you recognized that Jesus is the one worthy of all your trust and your allegiance and your love, and you trusted his saving power and his full sufficiency to forgive you of your sins and reconcile you to God. Paul says when that happened, you went through a fundamental change in your identity. You are no longer the same person that you were before coming to know Christ. You were living a life of sin under God's wrath. You were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he says in chapter 1. Now you have said goodbye to that old life and you have entered a new life. You've become a new person. And that's not because you figured out what was wrong with your old life, you saw what was lacking, you made the necessary changes, you got your act together through self-improvement and self-reformation. It's because you're united with Christ. By faith in God's working, you are connected with Christ in a way that means what, what, whatever happened to him is counted to have happened to you. So here's how he says it in this passage. You have been raised with Christ. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I would say Paul is using a strategy of repeating himself in more than one way so we can compare the different phrases that he uses uh, in order to get a fuller picture of what he wants to get across. And we're going to see that same strategy when we look at the specific exhortations that he gives us later in the chapter. But the, the first thing we have to see is how every command that he gives is rooted in the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, what did it take to rescue you from your old life? Whether you lived apart from Christ for many years and went through some of the darkest experiences of human depravity, or if you came to Christ at a very early age and were delivered from your old self before that old creature ever grew up, either way, God has accomplished for you what you could never do for yourself. In the death of Jesus, God has brought about 
the death of the old you. And in his resurrection, he has given you a new self and a new life. So the question is, what does this look like in daily living? How does this affect the choices that I make when I get up in the morning? I deal with the kids. I go to work. I sit in traffic. I face loneliness or disappointment or various stresses in my life. How do I take the reality of my new identity in Christ and apply it to everyday life? That's what Paul is addressing here in Colossians 3. And we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, but I think we can look briefly at these first 14 verses and see at least three very simple and very interrelated ways in which our new identity in Christ leads to a new walk. So first, based on what Paul says in verses 1 through 4, we can say that your new identity in union with Christ gives you a new focus for what you think. You can see that on the screen. Your new identity in union with Christ gives you a new focus for what you think. Remember what I said just a few moments ago about Paul's teaching strategy of using different expressions to get his whole point across. So in this case, he uses two verbs in the first two verses. He says, seek the things that are above and set your minds on things that are above. Well, those two commands could mean different things in different contexts, but when we put them together, we get an idea what Paul is talking about. The way we seek the things that are above is by setting our mind on those things, taking an interest in them and filling our mind with those thoughts. And the truth is, we do this all the time with things that we really care about, don't we? So, for example, most of you know our family has had two weddings in, the last, in just the last few months. Our son Philip was married in November, and our son Isaac was married uh, just in January. And these were really joyful events for our family. And of course, there's a lot of anticipation leading up to each of the weddings. And even after the weddings were over, and I went back to my ordinary routine at work, my mind, you know what this is like, my mind was still full of thoughts about what had just taken place. And I remember some, <laughs> some little detail, something that happened at the wedding, I just break out in a chuckle at some odd moment of the day. I'm sure whoever was around me thought I was very odd, and, and they were probably right, but in this case, I had a good reason for it, Okay. But of course, not everything that fills our thoughts is something as happy as a family wedding, right? There are sad and difficult events. Maybe a problem with your boss or your coworker. Maybe a serious and scary diagnosis from the doctor. Or maybe the rebellion of a wayward son or daughter or spouse. And those situations occupy our thoughts too because those are also things that are important to us. Some things we find important because they bring great happiness and some things matter because we believe they threaten our happiness. When Paul tells us to seek and set our minds on things that are above, 
he is telling us to view these things as the object of our supreme happiness. The Christian's greatest happiness is found in heaven. Not the idea of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp or even walking on streets of gold, but because that's where Christ is. And what is he doing there? He's seated at the right hand of God. Paul is reminding us of Christ's exalted status now that he has finished his atoning work. He is seated in the place of highest honor and authority, and from there he rules for the good of his people and the advance of his kingdom. So I want to ask you, how often and how deeply do you think about Christ's gracious rule from heaven? Do you consider what it means to be united like a body to its head with the one who has received all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you ponder at various moments throughout the day what it means to have your whole life defined by Christ and his saving reign? Do you fill your mind with thoughts of your security in him and his continuing intercession for you and the glorious future waiting for you when he, when he appears? These are the kinds of things that Paul is encouraging you to think about when he says, set your mind on things above. Now, I also want to mention there are some things that Paul does not mean when he says to seek the things that are above. He does not say that we are called to live our lives on some kind of super spiritual plane that is detached from all earthly realities. He knows that we have responsibilities to fulfill in various relationships in this present life. And in fact, the rest of this chapter is full of very practical instructions for those relationships and those responsibilities. As an example, down at the very the last portion of the chapter, which we're not looking at in any detail, but he gives instructions there for how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, how children and parents are to relate to one another, how servants and masters are to relate to one another. And it's based on the realities of, of who Christ is and our relationship to him. Servants, work for your masters because you're actually serving the Lord Christ. Work for your masters heartily because you're actually working for Christ. Masters, treat your, your servants right because you have a master in heaven. It's the way Paul thinks, the way he wants us to think. So the heavenly mindset that he's encouraging at the very beginning of this chapter is not in conflict with the practical exhortations he gives throughout the rest of the chapter. Instead, he's saying that the mindset on heaven and heavenly things is what informs and transforms our perspective on our earthly responsibilities. So the new identity that we have in Christ begins with transforming our thoughts, but it doesn't stop there. Paul also teaches that our new identity received in union with Christ gives us a new pattern for how we act. That's point number two in our short little outline. Our new identity received in union with Christ gives us a new pattern for how you act. Paul is very realistic when he addresses the issues that he does 
in verses 5 through 9. Even though we have become a new person in Christ, he recognizes and he wants us to be aware that there are what we might call leftover remnants of our old self that can still hang around and cause all kinds of trouble. And in this subsection, he is teaching us how to deal with those old practices. Remember, now remember his teaching strategy we talked about. He'll repeat the same idea in more than one way. Again, it's two verbs, two commands that we compare with one another to catch the whole idea. What does he say? Put to death what is earthly in you. That's verse 5. And you must put these things all away. In verse 8. So the straightforward idea is that we must stop engaging in sinful practices like sexual immorality and lustful thoughts and outbursts of anger and evil speech and things like that. But he gives it more, for, uh, more force by first telling us to kill those things. Put those old earthly attitudes and practices to death. He's warning us here that there is this conflict that exists between your old life in Adam and your new life in Christ, and that conflict cannot be taken lightly. You can't play around with this conflict and take it less than seriously. And I I, I want to use this as an illustration. Maybe it will make it a little bit memorable. Let's say you're... You're driving in your 4x4 out on a country road. Maybe out in East Texas or I'll say uh, up in rural Kentucky, which is where my dad's family has its roots. And you're enjoying your drive on a beautiful sunny day when right up in front of you, you see a big old snake slithering across the blacktop. So what are you going to do? That depends on your attitude towards snakes, doesn't it? So if you are a snake lover, a a zoologist or an environmentalist or something like that, you might stop the truck so you can get out and take a closer look. You might want to take pictures or at least admire the graceful beauty of this reptile undulating across the pavement, right? But if you're a good Kentucky hillbilly or an East Texas redneck, you know what's coming. You're more likely to step on the gas and flatten that thing. Because it's a snake. And you don't like snakes. And I'm not trying to hold up hillbillies and rednecks as an example in everything. But in this case, Paul says that's what your attitude and your approach should be towards sin. It's a little bit hard to say. Some of you men have a big snake in your life called pornography, right? And you're not stepping on the gas to kill that thing. You're stopping the truck and taking a nice long look. And some of you have discovered what a useful weapon Anger can be 
to intimidate your wife or your kids. So instead of killing it on the road, you're picking it up and hanging it on your gun rack so you can have it ready to use whenever you think you need it. Instead of squashing those sins with gospel truth, you are nurturing and justifying your sinful practices with all kinds of rationalizations. Now, I could tell you lots of reasons why those things are really bad ideas, but let's stick with the reasons that Paul gives us here in this text. You have died to that old life, you've been raised to a new life in Christ. The old life brings the wrath of God, verse 6, and that's how you used to live, verse 7. But now, verse 8, you need to put those activities away like an old suit that doesn't fit you anymore. You know it doesn't fit. It chokes and squeezes you every time you put it on. Why do you keep wearing it? Verse 12 begins to tell us what kind of new clothes we are expected to put on. And again, it's because of our identity in Christ. In this verse, we are called God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so with the knowledge of how God has bestowed his favor on us, that leads us to take on new attitudes of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And we learn to bear with one another and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. That's our new set of clothes. And the one thing that binds everything together, if we continue with that clothing analogy, like the the belt that keeps it all tied together, is love, according to verse 14. The new patterns replace the old patterns because of who we have become in Christ. Now, you may have noticed that we skipped one section in this passage because I wanted to address putting off the old practices and putting on the new practices together. But verses 9 through 11 also speak of putting off the old and putting on the new, but there it's spoken of as an already accomplished fact, which again produces an effect in the way we live. And the way he describes the changes that flow from that one fundamental change that's already taken place is what I'm going to call a new standard for what we value. It's the third point on your outline. Our new identity in Christ gives us a new standard for what we value, what we hold to be most important. So, notice the specific standard he mentions in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, he says. And then he gives the reason why we shouldn't tell lies or practice deceit. It's because we have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And then he goes on to describe some characteristics or qualities of that new self. The new person is being renewed, according to a very literal translation of this verse, it's being renewed unto knowledge according to the image of the one creating it. So the old self was constantly conforming to the knowledge of the old way of life. The new self is growing in conformity to a new likeness. The likeness or the image of the one who made it. The old likeness and the new likeness are in conflict with one another. 
because they have different standards for evaluating what is most important and most valuable. So going back to the sin of lying, prohibited there in the first part of the verse, the old self does not consider truth to be particularly important. Truth is negotiable. If it sees some advantage to be gained by, shall we say, adjusting the truth, well, you just do what you have to do to get ahead. The new self, growing in conformity to its creator, realizes that truth is too important to sacrifice for some perceived gain. The new life teaches me that I live in a community of brothers and sisters that can only flourish when truth is valued and prized and spoken faithfully to one another. Well, there's another clash of competing values that he develops in verse 11. Here, he says, in this new way of life, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So what is he saying there? He's basically lumping together all kinds of religious and social and cultural distinctions that divided the world in his time. You had the Greek-speaking citizens of the Roman Empire who looked down on the crazy cult of the Jewish people who practiced things like circumcision and only offered sacrifices to one God. And then the Jews carried themselves in pride over against everyone who was not a member of their chosen race. And then you had these uneducated barbarians who came from outside the empire and they didn't even speak the common language. And the Scythians were one of the most extreme and remote examples of those barbarian groups shall we say, like those bleeping you-know-what countries that our president spoke of so contemptuously just a few weeks ago. And those who were wealthy enough to own servants did everything they could to protect their superior status, while the underprivileged and the oppressed craved personal freedom and equality with the upper classes. But the new life which Paul teaches here, says that those earthly distinctions no longer matter. The only thing that really matters, according to this verse, is Christ. Christ is all and in all. Now he's not, when he says Christ is in all, he's not promoting some kind of new age pantheistic theology like Jesus is in the trees and the rocks and the grass. He's talking about people. Christ is in your fellow believer, no matter what ethnicity or social group they may belong to. What determines the closeness and quality of your relationship with another Christian should not be whether he's African American or white or Hispanic or a doctor or a lawyer or garbage collector. What matters is the presence and active power of Christ. Uniting the two of you together because you're both united to him. Now, if we are honest about ourselves and the condition of evangelical Christianity here in the United States, and 
if we soberly evaluate our inherited cultural biases and our position here in white settlement, we would have to say this New Testament ideal is easy to endorse in theory and it's actually harder to live out in actual practice. For the most part, we have not overcome the cultural barriers that still keep blacks and whites separate on Sunday mornings. And so we have to ask, why is that? And I think Paul's answer would be that we are not living by the heavenly mindset and the patterns of behavior and the true values of our identity in Christ. We still have a tendency to look suspiciously at one another when differences in worship or politics come up. And so what we end up doing often is say, well, we, won't, we just won't talk about those things with one another. And consequently, our relationships remain shallow and superficial. So I want to return to verses 12 through 14 and read them again in light of what has just been said in verse 11. What did he say there? Christ and his uniting presence among us is really all that matters. And that's why, as God's chosen and holy and beloved ones, we need to put on this new set of clothes. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, and if we know each other very well, we will have those complaints. What do we do? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've been serious and honest about your battles with the flesh, you realize you don't have it in in your flesh to have that kind of love. So where does that forgiving, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient love come from? According to the New Testament, it comes from union with Christ. It comes from seeking the knowledge and likeness of the one who gave himself for you so that you could have his life. It comes from pursuing the one who sovereignly rules over all things and exercises that, that sovereignty in care and commitment to you, his body. May God give us the grace that we need to seek Christ our head and walk in light of all he has done for us. Brett's going to come lead us in prayer.